God speaks to us in his word today through 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all thing, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all thi- are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, for we are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged. If his conscience is weak, or if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, we're going to do something before we jump in this sermon. Uh, If I have not met you yet, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here, one of the leaders, one of the pastors. And um, there is a thing that happens in this part of the world uh, that we are labeled as not just flyover state, but we're also labeled as the Bible Belt. And anytime you get a label, uh, that means that that has become a little bit of your identity. And anytime you get an identity, that means that there is um, the, the red uh, flag is waving. There's, it's a danger zone for things that are good things to become complacent things. And in this part of the world, the Bible and the church can very easily become complacent. So much so that we actually start worshiping the idol of comfort. And what I want to invite you to do today Instead of just being at a church, it is totally possible for us to have a good church service, for us to have a nice church service, to have a nice church, and totally miss the power of God. What we need, listen to me, what you need, what I need more than anything else is not just another good church service. We need the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I'm going to invite you to do something, man. I'm going to invite you to do something really hard. It's not easy, especially in the Bible Belt. Most of us are like, if we gotta go to church, there's probably some kids in the room that parents dragged them here. They're like, I'll go to church. I'm just ready to get this done and get on to lunch. I'm so sorry, but I wanna invite you to do something even if it's uncomfortable. We're gonna pray that God would move. We're gonna pray against an enemy that hates us and doesn't want God to move. And we're gonna pray for renewal of your heart, okay? So let's bow our head together.
If you're comfortable with it, I want to invite you to put your hand over your heart. It's just a sign. It's not, there's nothing magical about it, but it's just a posture. Now pray. Come and move in us. We pray against the devil. We pray against the enemy that hates our souls. We pray against the enemy that hates this church. We pray against an enemy that hates renewal. We pray, Lord, that you would shut the mouth of the accuser today. I pray that you would come into my heart, into our heart, and renew my heart. And for those of us who don't know Jesus in the room, Lord, we pray that you would take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Lord, we pray against complacency. We pray against comfort. We pray, Lord, that you would stir up our affection for you. Help us listen today. Help us receive it today. Let us be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Hey, if you're just joining us, I just want to tell you a little bit about our church. Of course, there are probably lots of things that we do that you might have questions about. I would love to personally answer any of those questions. We've got multiple people that will be down front that would love to answer any questions you have about our church. Uh, But one of the things we do here is we preach straight through the Bible. And so we just believe that the Word of God is the only thing that doesn't return void. And we want to give you the Word of God because I'm not that great at this and we are not that great at it. The only thing that we can give you that gives life and sustenance is this book right here that God wrote. So we're preaching through one of the books of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. And if you're anything like me, we had just taken a three-week break from 1 Corinthians. And before that, we had a couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians. Then we had a whole other break uh, over Christmas. And so I kind of forgot about this book, and I for sure forgot about what is happening in this town. So I want to give you a quick refresher about what's happening in Corinth. Corinth was a town that God decided to put a church in. So let me tell you real quick about Corinth. Refresh your memory. If you've forgotten... Corinth was the place that you go, like Vegas or wherever, where you say before, whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's where a lot of people went, the Greeks, the Romans, um, Jews, lots of different people. And they love the idea of uh, putting places in their town that would allow for comfort on every level. Corinth was a town of worshipers, but because they could never really settle on what to worship, they just put a temple in multiple temples in for every type of thing. And I mean every type of thing. You worship sex, you can go to a temple for that. Worship money, go to a temple for that. Any Greek God, any Roman God, temples all over. Temples for the Jews, temples for the not Jews, temples for Romans, not Romans, Greeks, not Greeks. So much so that they even had temples to unknown gods. Just in case we had missed somebody, if you wanna worship but you don't really even know what to worship, you can go to this temple or these 12 temples over here. The temple actually became the centerpiece of all social life in Corinth. Worship was the center of who they were. You would eat food in the temple. They would actually offer sacrifices to idols in the temple. There was this process of preparing food and then burning it before a God and then also feasting after that. And if you partook in the feast, you were saying, this is the feast of that God. I'm eating food that was offered to that God which is actually gonna happen for all of us that are Christians in the room. When Jesus returns, there's this thing called the Great Feast, the Supper of the Lamb. (laughs) Corinth was crazy, man. I mean, anything you wanted to do was in Corinth. And right in the middle of this craziness, you had the Greeks who loved knowledge, Romans loved strength and ingenuity and 
Jews were Jews, and right in the middle of this town, you have God decides to plant a church. Right in the middle of all of that craziness, he puts a church, a kingdom outpost. Now, that's an important term because I want you to know that what the point of this church and what the point of that church and every church that's ever been planted was to be an outpost for the kingdom of God. Now, the reason I say that is because in this part of the world, we tend to think of church as our own social club. Well, every temple in Corinth was a social club. If you have an affinity for this person, go to this, this God, this place. You can find any type of temple, any type of people, go there, that's your social, that's your community. We do that in this part of the world a lot with the church. I go to the place that I like the most, not where God wants me to be, or whatever it is. And so we turn the church into a social club. So it's been happening for a long time. In the middle of that, God sets a kingdom outpost in, in Corinth to share the gospel, to help bring the kingdom of God on earth, because it is a fact that there's only one way that the kingdom of God will come on earth, and that's through the church. So what their goal was, was to have been discipling the world around them, to tell them about the good news of Jesus, that you actually, there's only one God, and you shouldn't be worshiping all these other gods because they're not even real anyway. There's only one God. But instead what was happening, instead of the kingdom outpost of the church in Corinth, discipling the world around them, the world was discipling them. And so they were turning away and they were asking Paul all these questions and doing all these crazy things. And you had these uh, fractures in the church, this division. And one of the primary ways they were divided was you had these older Christians or not chronologically, but people that just had been saved a little bit longer compared to some that were just becoming saved. And those that had been saved a little bit longer, those kind of more mature Christians, they really loved their own knowledge. They loved the sound of their own voice. They kind of thought that they had figured it out. And then these weaker Christians, these newer Christians were looking to them and instead of what they were getting from them, instead of discipleship and maturity, they were getting the older Christians saying, you don't have to really follow God in that way. You don't have to really obey your conscience. Maybe you were eating meat offered to an idol before in one of these services, but we have a liberty. Actually, gods aren't even real at all. And right in the middle of that, we have Paul saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's talk about eating food offered to idols and really what today is about, what a lot of the middle of 1 Corinthians is about. Paul's answering a lot of questions that they've asked. You can tell by the way he says, now concerning this thing, concerning singleness, concerning dating, now concerning food offered to idols, which automatically you're like, I don't really have much to say about that. 2023, I don't know if I've ever even seen a statue or idol or whatever, but it's hyper relevant today because the real issue is about freedom. Now it is true, if you're in Christ, you are set free you're set free, but what does that mean for us? What does it mean for the church in Corinth? What does it mean for us today to have liberty, to have freedom? What does it mean to truly follow God in true knowledge, in true freedom? I think it's important for us because I will be the first to admit, um, I love freedom. <laughs> I love it, we love it, America for sure loves it. I mean, this country, you know, freedom from tyranny, that's what we, Kind of, that's our MO. We love the idea of freedom. We love the idea of liberty. I, as soon as, now you don't have to, you can raise your hand if you want. Um, 
raise the hand of your heart, I guess. As soon as someone tells you you shouldn't do something, what's the first thing you do? Where's Charlie? Is Charlie in here? Charlie, the guy that led worship today. Charlie and I have known each other for a long, long time. He's probably laughing right now. He's like, that's pretty much all of Ben's life. <laughs> if somebody tells you, don't do it, you shouldn't do this thing, I immediately, who in the room immediately starts to think, I wonder, how, I wonder why they would say such a thing. Why would they be so oppressive to me? Kids in the room to parents, like, yeah, preach, preacher. Why are they so oppressive? Why are they trying to keep me locked up in this cage by telling me I should or shouldn't do something? Mom, I don't care if the stove's hot. That's, I start to try and figure out how am I gonna do that thing without that person knowing because now I've just gotta know. It's this idea of freedom that we love. If you're, I'm about to be 42 uh, next month. And if you're in my kind of age range, especially for the men in the room, but there's a movie uh, that we all grew up watching that um, uh, had a character named William Wallace and a movie called Braveheart. And I remember the scene uh, towards the end, he had led his people to victory. He had fought for their freedom. And towards the end, a lot of guys in the room shaking their head like, yep, favorite movie. Um, Towards the end, man, he's on his deathbed. Literally, they're about to kill him. They've like drawn and quartered him and beaten him half to death and he's dying. And the last words that come out of his mouth, anybody know the answer to that? Last words that come out of his mouth was freedom. Freedom. We love it. I love it. We love the idea of freedom. I want to be free. I don't want to be abound. I don't want to be oppressed. I want to be free. But if I were to ask you today, what does it mean to be truly free? Truly free, what would your answer be? And if I were to ask you, what, how does culture define freedom? What would you say? What does it mean to be truly free? Do whatever I want, whenever I want? That sounds fun. I get to say whatever I want to whomever I want and never think about the consequences or do whatever I want to whomever I want, take whatever I want. There's things that I need that bring freedom that would help my heart to be free. But what about when somebody else who wants to be free wants that thing as well? What happens then? Who gets the thing? What about when someone stands in my way of freedom and they want freedom and they think I stand in their way and they're trying to go this way, I'm trying to go that way, but they're in my way and, but I'm after freedom. So what it means for that person? See, pretty soon it's like, we're not free at all. Freedom to do just whatever we want, to just follow our own self is not actually free at all. You get a society that totally collapses. There is a true freedom, but it's not the freedom for self-autonomy. It's not, it's not the freedom to be just whatever I want no matter who it affects. That's a very easy lie to believe. There is a true freedom. There's a true freedom to be human, to be actually human. There's a true freedom that's found in the gospel, in the good work of Jesus on the cross, in the way that God designed you and me to live. Humans don't have the best intentions. We need somebody to help us. We get things like murder, abuse, neglect, pain, and suffering when freedom is about myself. The gospel is freedom. It's freedom to love. It's freedom to be loved, freedom to be fully human, freedom from tyranny, freedom from bondage. It's freedom that's eternal freedom. It's true freedom. The Corinthians have fell into the trap of 
trying to be free to just do whatever I want. And here's the thing, true freedom is never marked by forgetting people. It's always marked by remembering people. True freedom means I think about people other than myself. Paul's answering several questions. This is a church that loves freedom, loves themselves, lived in a culture that loved their own mind. They loved knowledge, sex, food, indulgence, and arrogance. And they were divided. Strong, mature, versus weak, immature. So the question today that's being answered is being answered about freedom, about knowledge, about idolatry. He kicks it off with this. Answering the question about food offered to idols, Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols. Again, what's happening is temple worship. There would be preparation, there would be meat that was burned before God, and then you would have this great feast. It was a daily routine, sometimes multiple times a day for citizens of Corinth. All social life centered around these temples. Restaurants, parties. You wanna go to a restaurant? Go to a temple. You wanna have a party? Book it with the temple, that's your event space. Um, Anything else, any type of social gathering, you'll go out with your friends, you're going to a temple. The temple, the whole nightlife, everything, social life about the town was centered around temples. You literally couldn't do anything without walking into a place and worshiping another idol. It was interwoven into them. A lot like today, it would have been really hard to participate in any sort of cultural life without that. We feel that, modern day sports, <laughs> hard to be a fan. I mean, I, I'm a giant sports fan. It's the more that I watch, pay attention to my favorite teams, one, the more they let me down, there's no doubt about it. Two, the more that I care that they let me down. It's hard to be a fan or do anything without our hearts bending towards worshiping that thing and for us looking at it as a sustainer of life, which it was never meant to do. That was happening with the Corinth. Money, family, kids. The Christians in Corinth were split. Some considered themselves, again, to be more mature than the younger Christians because they had come to some great understanding of the freedom that they had in salvation. We see it throughout the whole book. We'll see it throughout the rest of the book. In this church, in Corinth, just like in our church, you had new believers and you had not-so-new believers. One who had learned several things about God, who had kind of been over the hump, this person that... um, had been through various trials, various things. They had answered a lot of questions. They had read the books. They kind of had experienced the emotions that this new person is experiencing and kind of wrote it off as silly. They've learned, adapted, been taught, studied. Others who were newer to the faith and didn't know as much, it was all new to them. They're just simply excited to follow Jesus and learn more about him. I love this because I mean, this is what I want. That new Christian, do you ever think about what it was like when you first, if you're a Christian in the room, when you first were saved? Do you ever think about that? you ever think about what it was like when you first understood, like, I need a savior and I have one. And it's not because of how smart I am. It's because of how good he is. Do you remember that? And you remember, like, you could think back to that moment. There's some new Christians in the room, and, man, we're so blessed by your presence here. Um, and then several things happen in your life. Life just kind of beats you down a little bit, and you forget what that was like. And then you grow in your skepticism 
and you stop trusting God and you stop trusting the people of God and you stop trusting his word and and then it stretches out and then all of a sudden your life no more is about things like reading the Bible and praying and worshiping and you don't feel renewed anymore. It's like that stuff starts to go away a little bit and you stop caring about the church and you stop caring about the word of God. You stop caring about his presence as much and it's just ironic that the mature Christians are the ones that seem to care the least. Two types of people on two ends of the spectrum. The one who knows more about God is the one who's least zealous for God. So Paul says to them, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The mature Christian, quote unquote, had learned so much that they had become arrogant. And Paul's cutting to the heart. Knowledge, he said, it puffs up. Love builds up. Do you think you know something? You don't know like you should. And then verse three is simply this, the gospel. How can we love God? How can we know God? Paul is saying, if you think you know God, it is because God knows you. You are known by him. First John four says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. Paul's saying, you can't have knowledge and not think about the weaker person. You can't claim to know God fully and not think about people at all. You're just thinking about what you can get away with. How is that love? How is that being revealed, the nature of God? And let me tell you something. I'm preaching to myself. Don't for a minute think the pastor's got this figured out, man. I'm telling you guys as I'm telling myself. To know God more means that word, to be intimate with him. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is when Jesus told his disciples, he says, I pray that you will know the Father. Well, that word is used throughout the Old Testament in lots of weird ways, but one of the ways it's used is when Abraham knew Sarah and when Adam knew Eve and they gave birth. It's the word, I'm not trying to be weird, don't make it weird, it's intimacy is what it is. That word literally means intimacy. Jesus is saying, I pray, my prayer for you is that you become intimate with God the Father. You can actually know stuff, hey, listen to me. Uh, Bible majors in the room, man, I'm, I'm 100%. I think you're doing a good thing. I think you're following, uh, hopefully following Jesus by that degree, learning about scriptures, any ministry, any, anybody that aspires to, to be a minister, learn, 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 learn. But at times what you can learn is things that fit right in here and never make it into your heart. The most important thing that you can do is learn and let it fuel your heart to worship God, to be intimate with him. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lays it out this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all that I have, all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I could become a martyr for God, but don't have love? It's not just a digression, it's I gain nothing. There's no gain. Paul's saying, you cannot claim to know things about God and not love your neighbor. You cannot claim to love God and not be moved by the person that's standing next to you. You can't. To know God, to be loved by him means that we love one another. So when you go into the temple and when they offer meat to you that's been offered to idols and you've got the person right next to you that's just been saved from that idolatry, the first thing that you should think about is not do I have freedom to do this? The first thing you should think about is how does it affect the person next to me? Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no God but one. He's quoting what they have already written to him. Paul is responding on a letter that they had already written to him. They quoted, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. True. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Yes, it's true, Paul says. What you're saying is 100% true. And then we get one, one of the most profound Christological statements on the Trinity in all of the New Testament. Paul is telling them two things. He's reminding them that he has knowledge too. He's agreeing, yes, you are right. However, you're doing what you have done is you're saying these phrases, you're making these statements, but there's no heart behind it because if there was heart behind it, you would actually approach this in a whole different way. Deuteronomy chapter six, Paul basically adapts when it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Paul says, one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Yes, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is one God, the Father. All things exist through him. All things are for him. Also, his name is Jesus. You forgot you might know a lot. You might have studied Torah. You might have studied Pentateuch. You might have even memorized it. And some of you guys go, I know enough to know that we have liberty now. But he's going, you forgot about Jesus. Because if you knew what you said that you know, then you would think about how would Jesus act in this situation? What would he say? How would he think about this person? How would the man who left the 99 to get the one how would he respond in a temple idol service? The same man that said this, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What would he do? How would he do it? Knowledge without love isn't knowledge at all. It's arrogance. It's just another way for us to compete with each other. That's what the Corinthians were doing. I've learned more than you. I know more than you. I've done the research. 
therefore, I'm right. I felt that one in this room. True knowing means we become intimate with the gospel, intimate with the saving work of Christ, and compassionate towards people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, even if they just stepped into the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9 says this, don't grow weary of doing good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Growing in true knowledge of Christ means we think less about what we can do or what we deserve and more about how what we do will affect the people around us. Paul goes on. However, not all possess this knowledge. Talking about the weaker. But some, through former association with idols, those that have been saved out of that life, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You get what he's saying here? He's saying we know, those of us that know, those of us that are mature, we know that there's no such thing as other gods, really. There's only one true God. We get that. Mission accomplished, we agree. However, there are some that don't quite have that in their bones yet. They just got saved out of a life of idolatry. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. No better off we did. Food, we know it doesn't matter. It's just food. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, a te- in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this is powerful and profound, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I imagine this is the part in Paul's letter where this is just what I imagine. I haven't read this. Where Paul stands up over the desk and says, as he's growing in his passion for God's people that came from God, God gave Paul passion for his people. He stands up, this is my imagination, and is writing emphatically, these are strong words, if it makes somebody stumble, then I will never eat meat again. I don't imagine that Paul was vegan before this letter. I don't imagine. It's all things for all people. The most important thing is to not make them stumble. You see what I'm saying? Strong and passionate language. He says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, sinning against your brother, you sin against Christ. If, I, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. I want to remind us that, sure enough, Paul wrote this, but really it was God. These are God's words to us. God wrote this through Paul. This is how passionate God feels about his people. I don't know today. Um, I don't know which category you fall into. I really don't. I, my hunch, just knowing our church, but knowing the part of the world we're in, is, is most of the people in this room are, have been in church several times. There's probably a lot of mature Christians in the room. 
and all of us fall into one or two ditches, really. We go back and forth in our life between legalism and, or we like to think we do, between legalism and then total freedom. And it's like you've got these two types of people on either side. That's what was happening in Corinth. That's what happens in our church today. And really, I think what Paul would say to us today, what God would say to us is that um, there's, a, there's a factor at play here that most of us don't think about. And that is, and this is the test to let us know whether or not our heart is connected with the heart of God. It's not asking, can I get away with something? It's not asking, will I be judged? But it's more asking like, what, who am I? What is my identity? What is it, it's so old. This, the whole WWJD movement, what would Jesus do? It's like, I hate that that happened on some level because now I can't even talk about it without it being cheesy, but it really is asking the question, if God were in this room, in the flesh with me, how would he react to people? What would he do? How would he treat them? Would he give them the benefit of a doubt? Would he be gentle with them? Would he correct? Yes. Would he restore? Yes, he would do it in a spirit of gentleness. He wouldn't avoid the truth, but he sure wouldn't be thinking only about himself. I mean, look at Jesus, who, though he was equal with God, did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who was he thinking about? Sure enough, his glory, yes, Glorifying the Father, sure enough. Also just crazy love for the sheep that left, which is all of humanity. My point is this, is like two ends of the spectrum, those that like love their liberty and love to throw it in people's faces those that are condemning those that love to throw it in people's faces and both at each other. And the point is this, is like, you should repent today if, if you line up on one of those. But also, this is the gospel. I love this. Jesus died and is saving both types of people today. It was God that wrote the letter to the Corinthians, both strong and weak. So, there's an invitation for you today. Put your heart before God. God, search my heart, know me. See if there's any wicked way within me. Galatians 5 says it best, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We're gonna pray together. And then we're gonna take communion. We take communion every single week here. And uh, if you're new to the church, if that's new to you, I can understand that'd be maybe unusual. But there's a reason why we do it. It's because... The Bible actually tells us to do it often. And it says when we do that, when we partake in this meal, 
We're partaking in a covenant meal with God's people, and it's one of the ways that we stay stable and we stay on track with Jesus. It's a spiritual thing. It's not just an act. It's also spiritual. Before we take communion, for the Christians in the room, uh, I want to ask you to do a little bit of work in your own heart and pray the prayer. Maybe you don't know what to pray today, but the invitation is this. I mean, look, there's no doubt people in this room that church is kind of weird to you and you're not Christian maybe and all the stuff that we've said and done today are a little bit strange. Um, but I'm telling you, it's the truth whether you believe it or not. You would not have come here today if God had not brought you here. And so I just want, I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you just to pray a kind of a secret prayer between you and God. God, I want to know that you're real. Reveal yourself to me. Search my heart. And for the rest of us in the room, maybe there's Christians in the room that are so far, maybe you forgot, maybe you forgot your first love. Maybe you forgot what following Jesus is. Maybe you've forgotten the goodness of the grace of God today. And maybe it's interesting how that plays out. The more in my life, the farther I get from God, the less I pray and think about God, and the less I, it's like the least compassion I have for people. I get less compassion the further away I get from God. So I pray, I want to ask you to pray and do some work if you're a Christian.